having the money just sit in a 401k, you know, pretty much not gaining anything else. You can't contribute any more to it. At least with an IRA, you still have full control. You can keep investing um, and, you know, choose whatever investments you want to make. So a lot of money actually ends up getting lost in 401ks. Oh, I got to go. I've been working, told them, please don't hit my phone. I'm in my zone, bro. Just leave me alone. Was on the road, but I swear I'm coming home. Now the drinks on me, I think we need a toast. See, I did it for me. Now my old friends calling, told them nothing's for free. Told me time is money, dog. I swear I paid on my fees. I was starving for this day. Now my fan, they can't eat. Hello, everyone. Welcome, welcome, welcome to the Cup of Nurses show here with your hosts, Peter and Matt, two nurses on a mission to change this world one conversation at a time. Thank you, everyone, for tuning in. If you find value in this show and want to join us on this mission, please share and review the show. It would mean absolutely everything to us. Cupofnurses.com for your latest merch, updates, and anything about us. For our lifestyle podcast, you can check out wearefrontlinewarriors.com. In this episode, we would like to introduce you to Anthony Swain. Anthony has been an RN since 2014 and currently works as a travel nurse and nurse finance coach. He recently released his new ebook, The Travel Nurse's Guide to Personal Finance. The goal for his book is to help nurses and other healthcare professionals develop a strong personal financial foundation so they can be empowered by money rather than be hindered by it. His mission is to help others reach financial independence. Thank you, Anthony, for being here. Can you give us a little bit of a background about yourself and what are you currently working on? Uh, hey, uh, yeah, so uh, I'm travel nurse, been a travel nurse since 2016. I have a nursing background uh, in tele, med surge, done IMC, PCU. And uh, yeah, like I mentioned, I've been a travel nurse since 2016. So pre-pandemic. I know uh, sometimes when I talk to nurses about that, they're like kind of blown away. They didn't even realize travel nursing existed then. Uh, much different than it is now. Uh, but my experiences along the way have been great. And, uh, it's, you know, it's led me to where I am now. And Anthony, when did you take a dive into like finance? Was it something that you're interested in while you're in nursing school? Was it something that you dove into while being a nurse? How did you get first interested in, in finance and the financials of of healthcare and just nursing, like your financials just in general? I mean, hey, yeah, that's uh, a, a big thing for me was, you know, once I started travel nursing, uh, obviously I was increasing my income, but kind of wasn't really having anything to show for it. And that's when I really started diving into educating myself, you know, started reading books, listening to podcasts. And I really started to realize finances could be like our tool to, you know, give us a greater future. And I realized, you know, you have to start sooner rather than later. And that's when I just went full tilt, just studied everything finances, every, you know, piece of knowledge that I can get my hands on, I was doing. And that kind of led me to where I am now. I'm in the position where I feel like I am an expert to some degree. And uh, that's why I kind of started branched off with my social media. And I started making it a platform to educate other nurses and healthcare professionals. So that's that's why I started, you know, Financially Fit RN. And uh, that's why I wrote the book, um, you know, my, my new book that was just released two weeks ago. And when it comes to travel nursing, do you feel like you made a lot more income when you started travel nursing where you put money aside or did your expenses kind of catch on to the travel nurse lifestyle where you were just in the same position you were as a staff nurse? What did you learn about your financial tips then? <clears throat> So that's a great question. And I think it really comes down to a lot of people, I think when they initially get that big pay jump, um, it's great and it looks great on paper, but sometimes that lifestyle creep, which, uh, you know, often gets talked about is real. You know, it's, it's very easy to start, you know, buying new clothes that you wouldn't normally, you know, maybe upgrading your car, you know, maybe living in a nice luxury apartment while you're on assignment, things like that. It all starts to add up, you know, maybe you go out to a fancy dinner, every, you know, a couple nights every week. And uh, yeah, I seemed to realize that that money wasn't really going as far as I thought. And that's when I realized, you know, you kind of have to set a budget on yourself, kind of live almost as if you were still making the same money as before. And then that's when you could really start making a big difference with how much money you can save and invest. Because um, otherwise, if you're just spending everything you're making, you're not really getting ahead. What are some advice you give to maybe the new nurse that's just finishing nursing school, getting her or their first actual job, getting a nice income and have some loans. 
Uh, what do you think that a new nurse should take into consideration when it comes to her finances? And then also on the flip side, moving from staff to travel, what should a travel nurse now uh, take into consideration when they're changing up their financials from a staff job to now a travel nursing gig? Um, yeah, so I would say for uh, someone that just graduated nursing school, getting their first staff job, it is a great career. I mean, you start off at a pretty decent salary. Um, it's what, you know, way more than minimum wage in most circumstances. And uh, yeah, so it is, it is a big jump going from a college student where maybe you weren't making much at all, if any at all, um, to, you know, an art staff RN salary. Um, so I think the biggest thing is not, this is going to probably trigger some people, but not getting that like brand new SUV car, you know, and, you know, kind of congratulating yourself for college. It's, it's very tempting. I, I see a lot of people do it. You know, they immediately, first thing they do, they get like some really nice car and that, that payment could be like five, $600, not including car insurance. Um, and then that's just a huge drag that you're starting off with. Um, so I, I would say that's my biggest recommendation is don't just immediately jump into like a big purchase that you're going to have to make payments on for the next five to six years. Um, and then as far as tackling your loans, right now it's, it's a little bit of a weird time because they're still trying to figure out if this loan forgiveness will go through and, uh, you know, the 0%, you know, like no one's really paying interest at the moment. So I typically say to kind of hold off until this situation gets figured out. Sure, if you run to, you really, you can keep making payments and try to pay that balance down because it is zero interest at the moment. So everything's going towards the principal. But you know, I would, I would prefer to kind of wait to see what the government will actually do, because if you start paying money towards it now, you could be potentially taking away from what the government will forgive. Um, so that's, that's what I usually would kind of recommend to people. Yeah, that's a big thing you bring up, because when we graduated nursing school, there was nothing like loan forgiveness. We have the, the FAFSA and our loans. Luckily, we came out of school, I feel like, with minimal loans, maybe few thousand dollars i'm not sure if you had, you had a loan or something probably a couple yeah grand. i had a couple i had um a couple g's yeah we just we always had the mentality of like screw like partying going out it was just always working a part-time job while being in nursing school and uh paying for the bills because our parents were immigrants so they didn't have as much money to cash out for us like hey it's yeah. okay man just worry about your education we'll pay your bills like nah man you got to work for your food and you got to right. work for your school <laughs> yeah, we definitely weren't straight a students so we didn't really get like like the full rides or anything like that we had just had to kind of deal with it our parents were like okay well school is this much we could give you a couple grand but then our rest of you, you got to take out a loan or you got to figure out yourself yeah. so did you come out of um school with any kind of loans and then and then when you graduated did you end up buying a car or were you kind of already financially savvy when you graduated so uh, first off i, I want to say uh you know awesome job by both of you and your parents kind of put you in a good position by actually like kind of teaching you that you like needed to work while you're in school. Um, cause I'm sure you paid down some of your balance at the time. And then also like just built that like character into you, uh, by, you know, kind of relying upon yourself to get your way through. So congrats to both of you. I'm sure you ended up with less debt because of it. Uh, I unfortunately was a first generation, uh, college student. My parents really didn't have any insight at all of what to, you know, tell me to do. So once I got into schools, they kind of were just like, all right, yeah, great. Got into college, you know, do whatever you need to, to, you know, get your degree. So I ended up getting accepted into private schools and I did apply for financial aid and it definitely helped some because, you know, I did not come from a lot of money. So uh, I did get some financial aid, but the rest of my tuition was pretty much just put on student loans and they make it so, so easy you know, to sign up for these student loans. And I think that's part of the problem. Um, so I really had no idea what I was signing up for, pretty much just signing signing my life away, just so to speak. But, uh, you know, once I was all said and done, I think I had almost a hundred grand in student loans. Damn. So a hundred grand student loans, that's wild. How did you end up, did you, did you have yeah. those loans or did you end up paying those off? Or did, and if you did uh, pay them I, off, how did you do it in an efficient manner? So I ended up paying them off, except the last I think it's about 5,000 at the moment. So, so yes, uh, it took a lot of discipline. It would have been a lot easier to spend it on crazy um, vacations and nice things that I wanted to buy, or e even honestly, maybe just buying a house. Um, mm -hmm. You know, I pretty much had to put all the travel money, money I made during the pandemic to, towards those loans um, and just kind of chipped away at them. It helps, you know, when they went to the 0% interest because most of mine were through the federal government so i didn't have to pay any interest so 
everything I paid was just going straight towards the principal. And you, and you like, um, I don't want to necessarily regress, but would you have changed uh, anything about taking loans if you were in school back then, if you could redo it again? Because I'm not sure if you worked full-time or not, or if you worked at all. A lot of my friends that graduate with a lot of loans, uh, one of the things they said is that they wish they would have gotten like a part-time job and started paying them off early versus not working throughout their four years of college and then having, having being stuck with that 100K. Would you change anything if you could go back? Uh, oh, yeah, 100 uh, percent. I think I would have done maybe something similar to you guys did. I mean, like, like I said, I, I give you guys a lot of credit. I would have probably tried to work part time to some degree. And then I probably would have started off at a community college and at least just got some of those prereqs done um, just to keep the tuition balance down. And then probably went to a state school. I went to a private school and I mean, it was nice. And, you know, I had everything I could possibly ask for, like on the campus. Um, but really, could I probably got a similar education at a state school, most likely. So my kids, unless if they get full rides, they will be going to community college and state schools. <laughs> yeah, that's what we did. We did two years of community college. You went to Moraine, I went to JJC for two yeah. years. And then we went to to um, a university. I went to a Catholic, was it a Catholic university? What yeah, it was to? Catholic. Yeah, well, went to a Catholic university, yeah. But I mean, working part-time while I was in school, it's really hard. And I will be honest with you, my grades for sure suffered. If I didn't have to work those hours and just focus on school, I definitely would have got better grades in nursing school. So it's something to take into consideration. It's like, do you want to pay off those loans early and risk not passing nursing school? Or do you want to just struggle it out and have a little bit of a easier time paying off the loans? Right. It's not for everybody. And also to add on to that, I had one of those talks. Like I remember my first year nursing was like, hey, you can't work. Your grades are suffering. What are you going to do? Mm -hmm. This is where you need the honesty and accountability. Be like, hey, I got to cut my friends. I got to maybe not go out this weekend. Yeah. Maybe put my family aside even to just focus on either work, school, and that's it. Right, because money could always be made. It's like, maybe don't focus so much on paying off those loans now and don't focus so much on money and just do the four years of nursing school because then after those four years, you're going to have a lot better time in life. doesn't matter if you have 100K in loans, 200K, 300K, you're still going to make a lot more money, like you said, the minimum wage. Yeah. So that's that should be, always be a priority. School should always be your priority if you're doing nursing. And then kind of worry about the financials later. Don't goof off and try and get like your fourth bachelor's for some reason and still have all those loans because there are a few people in my nursing school that had, they're going for a second or third bachelor's. And then some of those people, people stopped at the last year of nursing school and they're like three bachelors deep and still can't like get a job and now they're going for nursing school, this fourth one or this third one, and then they fail out of that. So it's like, it takes a lot of determination, a lot of, a lot of, um, a lot of effort to get through nursing school. And if you have to dig yourself into like a little bit of a financial hole, that's okay yeah. in the beginning. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you guys. Uh, another quick thing, uh, you know, I read in a book, Quit Like a, Quit like a Millionaire, uh, she actually talks about calculating your, it's called a pot score. If anybody wants to Google it, it has nothing to do with marijuana, but uh, it's basically a calculation that'll help you uh, determine if your kind of like educational path is worth it. So, you know, you could put in, you know, the average salary um, basically divided by how much your total student, like, you know, loan balance would be. And then it kind of calculates how many years they'd probably take have you to take it, pay it off. So there's some jobs that just do not that have that high of a score. So you can go to, you know, some liberal arts college and pay like 40 grand a year. Um, but then you might only be making, you know, let's just say 40 or 50 grand a year. So it's going to take you a long time to pay those student loans off. Or, you know, you could be like a, a plumber or a tradesman and actually maybe only go to like one year of some kind of trade school and have like a really high pot score. So it really just depends on what your like kind of profession that you're going for. Is it worth it? Is there cheaper ways that you, you know, you could achieve the same thing. So I think to an extent you guys are right, you know, while you're in school, you should really just focus on that. If you can, you know, have a part-time job to, you know, pay for some things like maybe your books or just spending money. Um, you know, that could be really helpful too. All great advice. And I want to transition now to somebody that's staff and potentially going into travel nursing, how do you transition all your financials to that? I know uh, there's some hiccups where as a staff, you have your 401k. Some When I when I went into travel, I didn't sign up for 401k. <laughs> Still haven't, to be honest. I'm just collecting all the money. So what's like the proper way to transition from staff to nursing when it comes to, or from staff to travel with all your financials? 
No, that's a great question, Matt. And, and Matt, I would encourage you after the show, uh, uh, I'll help you get started with a 401k for 2023. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I would say the biggest thing is making that transition. Uh, a lot of these agencies don't offer, you know, some kind of retirement account, but a lot of them actually do. Some just require maybe it's like one or two contracts. It's usually like six months, I think is usually like a minimum. And then you could start investing. Some will actually let you open one right from day one, like as soon as you take your first contract. So it just really depends. You have to like kind of do your own research as well. Um, but for a 401k, say, you know, it was coming from a previous employer and you wanted to transfer it to your new travel company. I mean, it, you could just transfer it direct, you know, one-to-one -one conversion, as long as it's both, let's just say traditional. Um, you can just do a one-to-one -one conversion, start investing with the new account. Or, you know, if you, your company doesn't have one right away, you actually still can take control of that money by transitioning it from a four, like a traditional 401k to a traditional IRA, individual uh, retirement account. Um, so that's what a lot of people also do. Um, with that, you know, the, instead of having the money just sit in a 401k, you know, pretty much not gaining anything else, you can't contribute any more to it. At least with an IRA, you still have full control. You can keep investing um, and, you know, choose whatever investments you want to make. So a lot of money actually ends up getting lost in 401ks. Uh, sadly, you know, people just forget that they have them. You know, they never make that transfer over, you know, years go by. And then, yeah, the, the company doesn't have to actually send you a check ever unless if you request it. So um, it could just sit there for years. Yeah, that's very true because I just got a letter in the mail a couple of weeks ago. It was to my parents' house saying that I still have my 401k invested into where I used to work in, in, in Chicago. And I, I completely forgot about that. And I haven't worked there in like the last three, four years. Luckily, luckily that came in the mail because it was like a nice, it was a pretty good chunk of, chunk of money. So it's just like, yeah, like when you mentioned it gets lost in there. And a lot of times as we, when we transition from staff to travel, we say, hey, we're going to dress this later on, and we don't ever get to it. And then that's the money, like you're saying, it's just sitting there. So then if I do have money stuck at like a random 401k, what's the best thing for me to do? Should I transfer over to like maybe like a Chase one, or should I transfer over to my current travel agencies? What should I do with that money that I had saved up in that staff job? So uh, one, I would say do not cash out. Do not take the check because... Because now it's time to cash out, so you hit Vegas. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> We have Anthony coming on, so I'm going to ask him. Nah, bro. He knows un Uncle Sam takes a chunk <laughs> anyway, man. <laughs> yeah, because Uncle Sam will definitely take their chunk. They will also hit you with a nice, hefty penalty. So that's probably like the, the least recommended thing that I would tell someone, unless if they were in absolute dire straits. Um, the next thing I would say is just transfer from your previous employer to the new travel employer. Um, and then the third thing, if, if not that, if you don't have access to that, then yeah, I would open an uh, individual retirement account, also known as an IRA. A lot of people just simply call it that. Um, and then yeah, you'll have full access. So I mean, you could open one of those with pretty much any investing institution, um, Vanguard, Charles Schwab, Fidelity, Prudential. Um, so yeah, you have, you have a lot of options. Um, so yeah, it's really up to you. Okay. What made you start into this financial journey of like, for example, writing your book did you notice this as a, maybe as a staff nurse as a travel nurse that there's not as much financial tips for nurses maybe nurses are struggling with it in general what are the themes that you noticed that got get that got you motivated to write your book um i would say a common theme is just lack of awareness um i know i was in that position when i first started traveling and i had to figure out everything on my own and it just wasn't something that I, you know, met a lot of nurses and they were just all talking about it. So it wasn't even, I could learn peer to peer. Um, so yeah, I, I really, uh, I started getting really into finance. I was very passionate about it. I started posting stuff on my social media and I would have dozens of nurses messaging me like, Hey, what is that? Hey, how do I invest that? Or, you know, could you explain this to me? And I just, it just clicked. Like, I was just like, wow, if there's this many nurses asking me questions about this stuff, and like, there's just a lack of awareness. There's just a need for the education. And that's what made me kind of just go full tilt. Like, hey, I'm going to write a book with everything that I've learned, everything that I know, and just make it all in one stop, you know, one place. And uh, definitely was a bigger undertaking than I thought. 
uh, it took me about a year in, in total to write this book. And it was a lot of editing, a lot of proofreading, uh, a lot of figuring things out. I, I had no idea how to even begin to write a book, you know, how to arrange the chapters and, you know, how to make things flow right. But, uh, you know, I just kept working on it until finally I was like, wow, this thing is done. And really, I, it kind of just pushed me to finally complete it this year and share it with everybody just because people were asking me about it. Like, when is your book going to be ready? When can I get your book? And I was like, all right. I feel like I have a responsibility now and that's what kind of pushed me to make sure it was finished by this year. And then in your book, is it just based on uh, knowledge about how to be financially savvy? What does it actually consist of? Does it tell you how to open up a 401k? Does it tell you where to put, put your money? What's actually in the book? Yeah. So the book is pretty, I would like to say as, as comprehensive as somebody could possibly make it. Um, it, it goes from, basically ground zero, like if you had no knowledge of personal finance whatsoever, to uh, really, honestly, even an expert could benefit from, it, benefit from it. So it helps you understand your philosophy around money, you know, day to day, like how are you making decisions, like why you maybe are making those decisions to, uh, yeah, just how to set up your finances. So as far as just automating your finances, like how to set up a budget, you know, how to direct where your money goes, you know, making it automatic so you don't have to think about it. Um, and then it even dives deeper into, you know, investment allocation, asset allocation, because um, I often get asked that a lot. Like, hey, I'm so-and-so, I'm 28. Uh, I had, you know, I want to invest this much money. I don't know what to invest in. So it kind of talks about like, what are some common investments, how to invest in them, and really what each one, the benefits um, versus the cons. So uh, it, it really, it really has a lot. It's a lot packed into one. Is there like an ideal system everyone should have a should have in place financially, regardless if you're a staff nurse or a travel nurse? So, in a sense of, for example, okay, I have this, I have this money. What should I for sure have as my baseline, as my fundamentals? Should I have a savings account? Should I have a four hundred one k? Great, I have those. What's next? What if I have a savings account, a good four hundred one k? Where should I invest in first? Should I look to real estate first? Does, does it not matter? What can work? Where is a good starting point to put yourself in? And once you have a good starting point and a good baseline and good fundamentals, what's the next step with with finances with investing? Um, yes, good question, Peter. Uh, so yeah, I would say my my order of operations uh, as far as saving investing is actually in the book, and it could be very useful as a resource for anyone. Um, but just to kind of discuss a little bit about it, I would say the biggest thing is to pay off any high interest debt, including credit cards, because those are just a total drag on your financial situation completely. Uh, think about it as like if you're trying to climb up, climb up a ladder that you had a book bag on and the book bag was full of rocks, um, you know, it would obviously be pr pretty difficult. The more of those rocks you take out and if your book bag's empty, you know, you can climb up the ladder pretty quickly. And it's kind of similar investing, you know, rather than trying to invest like while you're still, you know, have credit card debt, you're not like, really making a ton of progress because you know say you know every hundred dollars you're invested in you know the stock market you know say you have a hundred dollars in credit card debt that credit card debt is going to be 25 percent interest so unless if you're making 25 percent on the stock market it's kind of like a zero-sum game do you get what i mean yeah so you're basically um, losing yeah. more than you're making at that point yeah yeah so uh i think the biggest thing is for people to do that take care of the credit card debt high interest debt um, and then build an emergency fund so you then don't return to, you know, using the credit cards. Um, and this emergency fund could be, you know, anywhere from three to six months expenses uh, can be on the lower side. You know, if you say don't have a lot of responsibilities, don't have kids, don't have a mortgage, uh, you know, don't have a lot of medical problems. I would say it should be probably bigger on the bigger side if you have some of those responsibilities. Um, and then after that, yeah. Uh, you know, start to just max, maximize where your money goes. I think the the priority should be paying yourself first. So, you know, the, you know, the first thing, you know, when you're getting your money, you're paying yourself, um, you know, rather than worrying about, you know, where your bills are going, where your expenses are going, because if you start doing that first, then, you know, when you go to pay yourself, it's the smallest chunk of the pie. If, if you get what I'm saying. I can see why self-awareness in this area is important because you can just be blind to all these things and it's a multifaceted approach. It's not just finances when it comes to personal, it's also investing and, and having emergency fund. 
but I want to talk a little bit about personal finances. So how do you go by personal finance when it comes to your day to day? Is this, is this something you manage weekly, monthly that you evaluate? Do you use a specific app that puts like your expenses in categories? Are you using maybe just an Apple notes? I'm curious on how you do that. No, that's uh, yeah, it's a really good point. Really good question. Um, so yeah, I, I say uh, it's a little mix of a lot of things. Uh, you know, I know some people, um, they use their credit cards for everything. Um, I mean, I, I do that too. I use my credit cards for everything so I can get the points. Um, that's kind of like more advanced stage is actually, you know, using credit cards to your advantage to get free travel, free flights, free hotels. Uh, I don't recommend that to somebody just starting. That shouldn't be like the first thing they worry about. Um, but yeah, once you kind of had the systems in place, I put everything on a credit card and usually credit card companies track that. So, you know, you could look at every month, you could look at your balance or even kind of like on the app, they have like little trackers of like how much you spent on each category. Um, so those are really helpful because you could see like, Hey, I spent double the amount on going out at restaurants. I need to chill next month. Um, so that's kind of how I set up a budget at this point. I'm not super, super strict on my budget now. You know, now that I have like the systems in place and I've kind of remained balanced for a long time. Um, now I kind of just look at the end of the month, like, hey, is there anything I need to cut back on um, is, is more my routine now. Um, so, yeah, I use a combination of just tracking on the credit cards. Uh, I also have a, an app um, called Personal Capital. It helps me just track all of my assets in total. So my total net worth. I recommend that to anyone. It's really great. You can link all of your accounts to it. Um, they're encrypted, so it's secure. And uh, yeah, it's just a good way to evaluate like, hey, am I progressing upwards or am I trending back in the wrong direction? Um, yeah, so th th those are the two major things I use to track. All, all very good points. One thing I like to do on, on my um, Traveners contracts, and I get very meticulous about it, is I have an Apple Note. For example, this one, the title is San Diego 2.0, because I came back here this year and literally anything I spend on outside of like business, cup of nurses, personal gets listed there. Then um, I find out the weekly totals with the paycheck because we get it every week and see how much money I'm actually putting away to my savings. If I'm in, you know, if I'm saving three, 400 bucks and then, and you know, the week after it get, that gets cut down. I know mentally this week I need to budget so I could reach my peak of how much I could save up by um, end of the contract. And, um, that's 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 a that's a good that's a good plan. Uh, I do something similar in the beginning of my contracts. I kind of write out like how much net you know I'll be taking home over the course of the whole contract, and then I kind of minus you know what my typical spending is each month, and then from there I'm like, all right, I have you know six thousand left. You know what do I want to do with that six thousand? Like, is it saving? You know, is it investments? And then then I narrow it down even further. I go weekly. All right, so how much is that weekly? And then I just kind of set those to automatically go. So like every week I have money that automatically goes to my savings, automatically goes to my investment accounts. And when you start doing it like that automatically and it's systemized, um, it really kind of takes your thought process out of it. You get used to spending, you know, what you have left and then you have money being saved and invested the whole time. So a year later, you know, it could really add up to a lot. Yeah, for sure. I, I agree with you. And also what I love doing with that is, let's just say at the end of your contract, or at the end of the month, you can divide your weekly expenses to, and you divide it by seven for the amount of days. So you can find out what is the life of Matt? What does it take to live in the life of Matt daily mm. or Peter or Anthony? So you can see like daily, this is the debt that it costs to run the life of you. So then you, you know where to adjust or how to like cut costs or let's just say in this case, we're going to Thailand for two, three months. We're not going to work. You can see, if this is the daily life it costs to live as me, how much money do I need to save aside to safely say, hey, I'm back in three months. Whatever happens, I know that this is going to work out because I have this budget in mind. Because um, Well, that's a, that's a really interesting take. I've never really like heard someone talk about it like that or like break it down as far as like day to day, like life of Matt. Um, so that's something I might have to actually look into, figure out, figuring out my life of Anthony expense. Yeah. I'm going to trademark this. Yeah. <laughs> I joke. <laughs> it helps a lot if you want to take some time off in between contracts. And if you're, especially because for example, if your nurse has living paycheck to paycheck and you want to take some time off, you got to be a really nitty gritty and really in depth with your, with your financial, financial situation because 
you don't want to say, hey, I'm going to take three months off after this contract and you run out of money a month and a half in. Then you're kind of rushing and kind of screwing yourself over in the long run. Yeah. And also this has to do with a lot of the law of abundance, right? So if you save money, technically you're going to be good for three months. But for some reason, mentally, we always have this scarce mentality of it's not going to be enough. How am I going to survive, right? Maybe it's freaking because of post-communist era where we have this uh, mentality of just saving. So like if you're always fearful of losing money and always in the abundance or always in the fear mentality, how are you supposed to attract more money into your life? With the law of attraction, you need to say, hey, I have enough to do whatever my goals are and I'm going to go put that energy out there and, and uh, be in abundance technically. Yeah. Uh, and I, let's say I'm a nurse and I have like 20K. I have my savings account. I have my three to six, six months emergency fund. Um, I'm pretty good right now. I got the 401k. I'm comfortable. What can I do with this extra, to say 20k that I have? What would you recommend? Where could they put this money? Uh, yeah. So 20k. That's that's a good little chunk. Um, I would say yeah. If they have their emergency savings taken care of, you know, they paid off all their high interest debt. You know, they're they're starting to put some away in their you know retirement accounts. Really, that 20k. I mean, kind of depends on your goals. You know, if, if let's just say maybe buying a house or buying a rental property was one of your goals, I would say that 20K, I would put in something more safe. So think of your typical high yield savings account or maybe some kind of money market fund or CD, certificate of deposit, something where it's generally safe. Like that money is going to be available for you to use within a, you know, short amount of time liquid they call it so i probably want to keep it liquid you know just so you could jump on any opportunity uh, and you know the money wouldn't lose value is there anything more risky or more more higher yielding uh yeah so i mean if, if if that wasn't really um you know like say buying a house or buying like something like that wasn't you know one of your top priorities then you could totally invest that money um in you know securities uh like or equities like stocks um so you know you can just make it simple with like a stock index fund um and that money maybe wouldn't necessarily gain a ton right away but you know if you have a long-term outlook that money could grow to much bigger amounts especially if you keep contributing so that could be a really solid base to you know maybe start a brokerage account um, you know, where you could invest into these stock index funds and let the money grow year to year. Um, there's really no, I would say, investment where it's like, all right, I'm going to put this 20K in and I'm immediately going to 100%, you know, 100X my money. Um, any Anybody that is claiming they can teach you those ways, you know, teach, teach you how to 100X your money, you know, in one year, they're they're probably scamming you. They're, it's probably part of some elaborate, um, scam that they've come up with and they're just trying to get you to invest with them or, you know, spend money on coaching with them. Um, there's nothing out there that's reasonably predictably going to give you that kind of return. So I would recommend anybody avoid anything like that. Anyone that's telling you, you know, them to buy some fun or buy some hot stock or buy some cryptocurrency. Um, you know, there, there obviously comes with a lot of risk. So I, I would I would recommend against that. So anybody that's not in the entrepreneurial space that could potentially take some risk to retire early, let's just say you're a staff nurse or travel nurse, you're just kind of doing this. Is it possible to retire by like 55 or 50 or even earlier instead of like working bedside your whole life and retiring at like 65 based on the tips that you're giving? So allocating resources to like 401ks and Roths and maximizing all that. Is there a foreseeable uh, future of retiring early? Absolutely. I, I totally think it's possible for any nurse. I mean, especially travel nurses, um, you know, any nurses that are going for advanced degrees. I mean, you're going to come up with a good amount of income. Um, it really comes down to your savings rate. If you're willing to put in the work, be disciplined and increase your savings rate. Um, you know, there's calculators out there that, you know, based on your savings rate, kind of can determine how many more years you need to work. So your savings rate basically is, you know, what your in, you know, income is versus how much you're saving. And that kind of comes up with a percentage. And it really doesn't matter what your income is. It's more so about the savings rate. So let's just say if you were, um, you know, 50% 50 of your income 
that would mean that your expenses are on the lower end of, you know, how much money you're making. Um, so then in retirement, you would only have to live off that much. Now, let's say somebody that was making 100K was only saving 10% of their money. That means every year they're spending 90,000. So in retirement, they're going to have to come up with, you know, 90,000 per year in retirement. So it's a little combination of both, you know, what your income is versus how much you're spending. Um, so if you can be super aggressive and just be a super saver, super investor, um, you could definitely put an, enough money away. Obviously, there's things that are kind of out of our control. Like if you were investing in the stock market um, is typically, you know, higher returns. Um, but, you know, it, past performance isn't indicative of future returns. So no one could predict 100% if stocks are going to be the best move. But if you go with history, they've returned somewhere in the ballpark of 10% per year. So if you just kind of calculated that out among, you know, whatever years you have left until you want to retire, you can kind of figure out what your por portfolio size would be. Um, so, yeah, I would, I, I would recommend it is definitely possible. There are many ways for people to do it. It kind of just depends on your personality, you know, do you, what kind of risk tolerance you have. So if you're somebody more risky, you can get into things like real estate and stocks. If you're someone less risky, it's probably going to be harder to, you know, hit those high portfolio numbers, you know, with just bonds and kind of savings where you're getting, you know, anywhere from one to four to 5% returns. Um, but, you know, when you can start getting up there with stocks, you know, when it's 10% ish and then real estate could even be greater, you know, just for the leverage. So I think it kind of just depends on the person really. Okay. In your book, you mentioned asset allocation and investment allocation. Uh, what's the difference between both of those? So good question. Uh, those are, uh, could, can be misconstrued as, you know, similar or the same, but they're different. Um, so assets, asset allocations, the major assets are, uh, like I said before, cash, cash equivalents, anything similar, uh, stocks, then you have uh, fixed income, like bonds. And then a lot of people refer to real assets uh, is another asset. So that's things like real estate. And then uh, last, usually alternative investments kind of get all packaged into one. So that's things like crypto, you know, art, collectibles, things like that. Um, and then investment allocation is what you're actually like, say if you are investing in stocks, then what exactly are you investing in? Are you investing in the S&P 500? Are you investing in a total stock? Are you just investing in, you know, Nike and, and Amazon and Google and Facebook? Or, or I mean, are you just investing in certain companies? So that's like where your investment allocation comes into play. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then I'm just curious, are you currently investing anything? What is, what does your investment look like? Do you investment, do you invest in real estate, do you invest in stocks? What do you do with your money? So currently I am a hundred percent in stocks. Um, and it's all in index funds. So it's a mix of uh, total U S stock market. Um, and all, all my money is invested with Vanguard also. Um, so all my money is in VT stacks, uh, VMAX, which is uh, emerging markets. Uh, and then uh, there's a Vanguard total, you know, kind of world market. I'm in a fund similar to that. Um, so that, that pretty much makes up my entire portfolio. I'm, I'm more heavily into US stocks just because I think they still can, United States will still continue to prosper and uh, be one of the more dominant countries in world economy. So I am most heavily invested in that. But I don't want to be 100% invested in them because I realized often as investors, we have home country bias and we don't think about, you know, what other economies actually are doing and how that affects the whole world. So emerging markets obviously like have a lot of a lot more room to grow than the United States. For example, we're already developed. Um, there's less that we could potentially grow. So I think if you ever balanced, I would say investing in like a total stock market fund is probably one of your better ways to go. Um, so yeah, that's what I'm currently invested in. Okay. And then you invest in like indexes or do you pick your own stocks? I invest in index funds. Uh, you know, there was times where I was really trying to pick individual stocks and there was some that I, I, I did favorably. And I made some money and then there was some that I, I really lost a lot of money. For example, anyone that's invested in Facebook or, 
the company formerly known as Facebook Meta, uh, they can know that, you know, the company's lost probably greater than half its value from its all-time highs. So if you were investing 100% of your money in Meta, you would have done very, very bad. Um, so investing in individual stocks kind of puts you in that position of having all your eggs in one basket. So that's why I like index funds. You're spread out. You get a little piece of a lot of different companies. So when they're all performing well, you get a piece of that. And let's just say a handful of them are doing bad. They're going to drop lower out of the index. So it's kind of self-cleansing too. You know, it's not something you have to worry about all the time. Yeah. You, you make a very good point because anybody that wants to take the money and invest themselves, you have to look at these stocks and see what's happening, no one to pull out. So you make a good example. I had a lot of money in, for example, Moderna and Facebook and stuff like that. And all those stocks is dipped in these past couple months or even a year. So again, companies that are like Vanguard, they'll move around the assets so you're not taking as much of a hit. So it takes the pressure away from you. And just so everybody kind of gets uh, is on the same page, what's the difference between like an index versus a stock? So an index fund is usually a, like a basket of stocks um, kind of trying to mirror some sort of index. So let's, for example, let's just say the S&P 500, um, which is standard and pours 500 biggest U.S. companies. They basically put it all together in one index fund where, you know, they take a small percentage. It's weighted too. So they take a small percentage of each company and that makes up the index fund. So you have pools of you know hundreds thousands of investors and you know they buy all these shares with all the money and then each share is equates to let's just say one percent apple you know one percent google one percent amazon and then you know so on and so forth until it gets to the you know very bottom of the companies where they might only be like half a percent or you know three quarters of a percent um so you're getting a really a little piece of the entire u.s economy or you know the, a little piece of the top 500 companies. And personally, that's what I like the best, especially ones that are passively invested because there's not like an active manager that's like making these decisions. Cause that kind of just goes back to like what Matt was saying. It's, you know, somebody trying to pick, like somebody's trying to time when to get in, when to get out, how long to hold. And that's when investors can make mistakes. And I personally don't really want another investor making mistakes for me that I could be making. So I like just investing with the indexes, passive index funds, um, just because they have, you know, have track long track records of good returns and you're you're not having to choose investments, do weekly research, timing the markets. And it's something I mentioned in the book. I actually break down like why it almost doesn't even make sense for someone to try to individually pick investments, especially if that's not something that they're passionate about. They're really gonna be wasting their time. Yeah, hundred percent. I'm on the flip side. I'm, I'm like a passive active kind of investor. You're, so hi you're a hybrid, huh? I'm a hybrid. I'm a hybrid. You know, because <laughs> I never invested in indexes. I always invested in personal stocks of companies that, that I believed in, but I used to do like research back in the day. Like I found, like you said, it's, if you don't like it, then you probably should just go with indexes. I'm more passive, but if you like keeping up with companies and just trying to figure out how to like overperform the market, then individual stocks like Robinhood, because I've used Robinhood for the past, I don't know, since I got out of nursing school. I was basically using Robinhood. So all my all my um, stock investments were never in indexes. They were always in stocks that I thought were going to always do good in time. But I don't actively trade them. All I do is really buy them and I just hold on to them. I, I haven't really sold much of my stocks unless I really think a company's gonna fail. So I, I just I just pick what I think are going to be good companies in the future and I just put money into those and I just let them hang there versus the, versus the index. Because like with the index, it's more of like, you said it's more passive so it's like, if some company, if a few companies do real good, but then other ones, other ones do poorly, it kind of evens out. I'm more of like the more of the risk taker. I like to invest in companies directly versus the indexes. And it's really not a terrible idea. You know, if you are investing in some companies that, you know, you've done research, you like their long-term outlook, you know, it's, you're totally comfortable with, you know, the kind of the risk that you're taking. You can, you know, take, you know, a shot at some companies you know, some of the greatest investors of all time, they only invested in a handful of companies like Warren Buffett. He only has, if you, he, I think you can find his portfolio online and it, it's really just, I think like a dozen or so companies, maybe less. And it's just because he knows those companies, he studied them, he knows their long-term outlook and he's comfortable with investing in them for a long time. 
I think one of his famous sayings is like, if, if you're willing to invest in a company and then that stock market closes for the next 10 years and you're okay with still holding on to that company's stock, knowing that, you know, in 10 years when the stock market re reopens, that it's going to be fine and it's going to be one of the best performing companies, then that's like a company that you should invest in. Uh, kind of paraphrasing a little bit, but, you know, you don't have to pick, you know, the index funds. You, you could make kind of like your own index fund of companies that you truly have done the research and you are okay with their long-term outlook. But with an index fund, like I said, it's not something I do want to sit in front of a computer and spend hours, you know, filtering through all the data. I would rather just kind of get a little piece of the action and just sit back and focus on other things I enjoy. That makes sense. That's a very good point. What about those companies that are like Trans America? So I know a couple, I had a handful of phone calls this year where they say, invest with us because you're not going to lose money. And then if you pass away, your loved one is going to get a chunk of money. How do those companies work as far as investing? Uh, I'm not entirely sure what you might be referring to, but if you're referring to like uh, life insurance, that's kind of what that is. Okay. Um, so yeah, life insurance. I mean, it, there's a ton of information out there about it, but typically uh, some of those life insurance policies, uh, you know, if they're trying to sell you on a certain life insurance policy, more often than not, they're getting some kind of sales commission from it. And the fees for that in policy might be greater than the benefit they're actually receiving. So they kind of package it as, you know, they, they start tying emotional things to it. Like, Hey, you, you know, need to take care of your loved ones. Like what happens if you're, you're gone? Like, and you know, they start kind of tying emotions into it. So you start saying, yes, you, you buy in and you know, you're, you know, you're paying, you know, let's just say 500 to a thousand dollars a month in premiums. But really, if you just invested that money for the same length of time, you could probably end up with that much in this, like the same amount of time. So like, let's just say for life insurance policy, they're like, hey, you have to pay this premium, you know, within 20 to 25 years, it's at its full maximum benefit, right? But if for 20 or 25 years, you just invested that money, more than likely, you would probably end up with more and you'd be in theory giving your family potentially more, uh, you know, in returns. So, I mean, someone doesn't necessarily need those policies and I would probably uh, be weary of a lot of them. <laughs> yeah, it was very emotionally sold to me. I, I felt that she even offered me like a book, like, oh, you know, Ed Milet, I was at his um, talk and I'm going to send you a free book of him. She said she's going to send me that book. But after I told her I'm good on this, she, that book never came. <laughs> so I knew she was trying to hustle me, man. <laughs> oh. I will, t I will tell anybody that, you know, is interested in life insurance policies because they're definitely not bad. They can definitely be uh, just a great part of your financial puzzle um, is term life insurance policies. So term are typically cheaper in the premiums. Also, I'm not a salesman for anybody that's listening to this. Uh, I'm just giving you some general information. Uh, term life insurance policies, you could buy just for a specific term. Let's just say, you know, for the next 10 years, the next five years. Um, and that's basically just going to, you can calculate how much you would, your loved one would potentially need to kind of live on without you. You know, once say if you passed away, God forbid, um, if you passed away, you know, that money would take care of them for X amount of years. You know, you could call it, you know, the working years of your lifetime. Um, and then as you get older, you'll start to build up more of your own portfolio. So you could start taking out less term policies. So say, let's just say if you needed a million dollars to start that, you know, that makes you comfortable. You're like, hey, you know, my wife have a million dollars that'll help her pay bills for the next 25 years or 30 years, you know, and then 10 years down the road, you're like, all right, wow, now I have 500,000 of my own money. Maybe I only need a $500,000 policy and then it's cheaper. And then you just say 10 years from there, maybe you only need a hundred thousand. So you only take it out for that much. So it really could just be like a buffer between, you know, how much money you have now that you could just give to someone and then how much money they may need in the future. A really good Pretty point. Good yeah. Point. Cause the life insurance stuff, I feel like my parents always get hit with that. Like, like a handful of times a year, I feel like, and they always pull that emotional, emotional card. They have like 12 different packages and they try and sell it in each package. It's, it's a lot. And they even asked me about it. I'm just like, 
I have no idea. Like, I don't know anything about life insurance. So it seems like a good thing. Life insurance, insure your life. But it sounds like it's not the best. You should have told me just a hybrid. Yeah, I don't know how to do that. Definitely explore all your options and do all of your own research. Because if you get on the phone with one of those salesmen, they will for sure do everything in their power to get you to buy one of their, you know, products before you get off the phone call. It's like their job is to get you to buy some. <laughs> Anthony, as we wrap up the show, one last question we'd like to ask all of our guests. So if you had the opportunity to have a, have a cup of coffee with anybody one last time, who would it be and why? Oh man, that's, that's a really good question. And I, I thought about it a little bit, you know, before the show and uh, you know, I'll, I'll say it's you guys. One last cup of coffee, one last episode with you guys. Yo, thank you. I respect. <laughs> no, but if I had to choose like a famous person right now, I'm, I'm really big into following uh, Alex Formosi. Are you guys familiar with him? Yeah, a little bit, yeah. Marketing yeah, he's guru. A big entrepreneur. He has a podcast and uh, he has a lot of really interesting things to say. So I think kind of right now in my entrepreneur mindset, uh, I, I, I like listening to him a lot. So I think sitting down and having a cup of coffee with him, I think would really expand kind of my knowledge and how I look at things. What would you want to ask him? Just curious. What would you want to find out about him? The main thing I think I would ask him is just, just like how, like how he was able to grow so quickly and what was like the most, the, the biggest things that helped him find value for, you know, all the people he follows, all his clients, all his customers. Cause I think that's kind of the end goal is just how we can provide the most value um, into the most amount of people. So I think that would be the biggest question I had for them. Mm, yeah. So love cool. that. And Anthony, where do people find you? Yeah. So you can find me on my Instagram. Uh, it's financiallyfit.rn. Uh, that's where I post all the educational content, all my free uh, you know, savings, investing, and debt payoff uh, tips. And then you you could also, uh, on my Instagram, you could find the link to uh, the ebook, the, e the Travel, Travel Nurse's Guide to Personal Finance. Thank you. Anthony, we just want to acknowledge you for the wealth of knowledge that you are. You gave some great game here when it comes to finances on the show. So I'm sure many nurses and followers were, will tune in and take advice from this. And if they want more, they'll check out your book. And yeah, thank you. And maybe we'll see you back on the show, man. Yeah, thank you for having me, guys. It was it was awesome meeting you both. I thank you again. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much, man. Appreciate it. Peace. <laughs>